How we doing, friends? It's uh, it's Canturi and you, and as always, great to be with you here. Thank you to Jake Nager and the Moment of Truth for providing our background music. They've got a new record coming out this August. Stoked to have them on board. Jake, a prolific artist. And uh, today's episode is something else, man. Wow! Sebastian Slavin, who grew up here in La Jolla, former professional bodyboarder, sponger. <laughs> he probably hates that. I love saying sponger, though. Uh, but as a young boy, Sebastian lost his dad to suicide and inspired his life greatly. It had a tremendous impact, needless to say, but he recently launched and published a memoir by the name of Ashes in the Ocean, Sebastian did here, which is a reflection about living through and learning from his father's suicide. Now, I know the subject, needless to say, is not an upbeat subject, but it's certainly something that I think needs to be addressed, needs to be discussed. I'm so proud of Sebastian for coming forward and sharing his story and putting this book out there. I mean, that takes guts, especially with some of the stuff he shares with us here in this forthcoming episode. It's something else. Now, before we do get to that, I have to thank some sponsors here, as you know. First, uh, let's start with BajaBound.com. The easiest way to get your Mexican auto insurance. If you're driving to Mexico, the adventure begins with BajaBound.com. You can buy and print out your Mexican insurance policy online in minutes with their easy-to-use website. Daily, six-month annual policies are available. They're mobile-friendly. You can get a free online quote, and then boom, you're up. You're running. If you have any questions, go to the website. Again, it's BajaBound.com for more info or simply call toll-free 1-888-552-2252. Now, when traveling to Mexico, I'm going to tell you something right now. Do not stop by Tori Holistics before going south of the border. <laughs> Actually, it's probably easier getting in than out. No, I don't recommend any such thing. But uh, if you are in the market for cannabis or cannabis-related products, needless to say, we highly recommend, highly get it, you uh, check out Tory Holistics in Sorrento Valley, serving all of North County and beyond. In fact, they've got a delivery service, Tory to you, and you can find that at toryholistics.com forward slash delivery. But as you know, 420, right around the corner. I mean, it might have passed by the time you're listening to this, but during 420 week, it's like a national holiday, as you know, to consumers and Tory Holistics representing. They've got uh, huge deals, savings, specials going on, live entertainment, food, all that happening during the month of April in observance of 420. I'll tell you who's down with the Tory Holistics lifestyle. Uh, an artist I saw last night over at Humphreys, Miguel. Unbelievable. R&B artist. Do you know Miguel? He's got a new record uh, that he's supporting right now. It's got that song Skywalker on it, Pineapple Skies, Criminal. Uh, his last record, Coffee. It's one of my favorite jams. But uh, Miguel was insane last night down at Humphreys. And it was funny, though, because... You know, Humphreys can be kind of stuffy. It's like Yacht Rock Central down there. You got all the yachts and white people drinking their Chardonnay and wearing Birkenstocks and uh, what have you, topsiders. And uh, the Miguel show, though, it was just nuts. You know, people were blazing. He's, as I said, very pro-weed. He's also very pro-sex. 
and the women just love this guy. I mean, he would lift up his shirt, and I, the ladies would just faint. <laughs> it, it wasn't that extreme, but I'll say this much. It was the first time I saw a woman throw a bra on stage since the 80s. Now, that's the truth. I think the last time I saw women throw bras on stage was at like Guns N' Roses at the sports arena in 1980, what, 9, 90? That's the last time I saw that action. Until last night, at least two or three bras went on stage during Miguel. It was hysterical. As we get to uh, Sebastian Slavin here, and uh, we'll change gears. I know, again, this is, a, this is a heavy one, but as I stated at the beginning of the year, I'm really committed to expanding outside the comfort zone and uh, really talking to people about meaningful things. There's nothing more meaningful uh, these days than talking about and discussing mental health and mental health issues something that I personally have uh, dealt with since I was a child, anxiety-related issues. I've gone through periods of my life where depression, I've never dealt with depression until the last several years, and it's been a bear at times, and it's, it's challenging and hard to talk about, but it needs to be addressed because, as you'll learn in this interview, the worst thing you can do is feel alone, and it can be fought, and you'll learn that listening to Sebastian Slavin here. And again, he's coming on to talk about his new book entitled Ashes in the Ocean, a reflection about living through and learning from his father's suicide. I've been wanting to write this book for a long time, probably the last 15 or so years, and um inspired by you know mainly my father who who was my hero and you know legend to me and lost him at a young age i was six years old and just dealing with that going like dealing with the shame and the stigma of that seeing what that did to my family and having my own personal journey and sort of coming out the other side and being able to look back and it it made me want to help like younger versions of myself, like people who have lost loved ones or family members to suicide. Okay, so you say it happened to you at a young age. It was that vivid at six years old, because I have young kids. I have a nine and an 11 year old, and often as a parent, and I, and I know from other conversations you and I have had, you don't have kids yet. Right. I often put myself in my kids' mindset and wonder how much they're retaining as far as, you know, there's hardwiring and there's environmental. Right. You went through environmental trauma, but you were extremely young. How much were you retaining at that point? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And a lot of it, my early, early memories are a little bit fuzzy. And for a long time, you know, I grew up in La Jolla and had a pretty idyllic upbringing. Like everything, everything seemed perfect to me when I was really young. And, you know, it wasn't until probably a year or two before my dad died that I was recognizing, you know, I was like five, four or five years old, that I was recognizing that things weren't okay and things were, you know, th there were struggles going on. And then when my mom told me he died, he t she told me he took his own life. And I, I remember that. And I remember also not really fully understanding what that meant. Right. And it was in the years after, like kind of not knowing what to do with that and then not feeling like I could talk about it, that... um I sort of, I think, started to process a lot of the stuff. And, and did you have siblings? Yeah, I have a younger sister, so she was two at okay. the time. So obviously she was way too young to process the what was happening at that point. I'm sure it had an impact on her later in life. But yeah, for sure. Tell me about your father. My dad's name was Vernon Sloven, and he, he grew up in South Africa in Cape Town. 
he was, you know, I've got, there's some pictures in there I can show you, but he was like a legend, you know, in every, every sense. And like a lot of my memory of him is just like this larger than life, like badass. He was a competitive swimmer from a really young age. He made the South African international team, the spring box when he was 16, I think started traveling the world, but he was just like a beast, like trained, trained harder than everyone was one of those, you know, kind of just incredible determination, incredible willpower. Sure. He was recruited by Southern Methodist University when he was 17. So that's how he came to the States. I was going to ask. Swam, yeah. swam for SMU for four years, then went on to do an MBA there, and then eventually moved out to San Diego. Okay. Um, but he kind of treated everything, you know, like a race. Like he, he, he was a stockbroker, but he, he kind of set really high goals and just like charged forward. And so my memories of him are just like, you know, badass businessman, badass water person. Athlete. Athlete, just kind of like a... Just the pillar of a man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just successful, financially successful, physically successful. Totally. Had the family unit, was just ruling the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in my a lot of my memories of you know, watching people, you know, he was sort of a legend in La Jolla a bit, you know, from he was a... He did, you know, the La Jolla Rough Water Swim. It's this annual yep. ocean swim. But he won that like eight years in a row or something like that. So, crazy. yeah. So Home, everyone knew Hometown him. hero. Kind of hometown hero. And, I, you know, I saw people interacted with him. And I was like, this guy's, this guy's legit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally get it. And how old was he when things started changing and shifting? So he went from this, this pillar of strength when did you start noticing or, or when did the weakness and his persona start to change? Yeah. He, not long after I was born, I think a couple of years, two or three years, he ended up, he lost some money. He made some like, poor business decisions and that really made, you know, impacted him strongly. It yeah. wasn't like we were out on the streets. Like my mom, my mom had a degree. She was a teacher, speech and language therapist. But it was more like his, the image of him, his success was, was shaken, right? And he uh, didn't want to be in La Jolla anymore, um, lost some money, and, and kind of cut ties with a lot of business relationships and took us to Australia. We moved to Australia. He's like, let's just like uproot and move out and start, start fresh, right? And how old was he at this point? You know, early 40s. And we moved to Melbourne. He has some connections, some South African connections in Australia, gets a job. We're in Melbourne for, I think, six months or so. And it's not long before he's looking for somewhere else. You know, he's not happy with, he can't make the same money he could in the States. Or yep. he's just comparing it back, you know. You're always comparing back to what you had. Right. We moved to Perth, which is the west coast of Australia. Yep. Beautiful town, you know, same deal. Like, um talking it up to my mom, all the stuff, selling it. And then we get there and he, he, you know, he's satisfied for a few weeks. And then he's like, I want to go back to the States. And at this point he's starting to have, according to my mom, like, you know, he's becoming more scattered, more depressed, not, not taking care of himself like he was. So we moved back to the States and almost immediately, according you know, from my mom, I've talked to my mom about this in a lot of depth, almost immediately, like as the plane touched the ground in LA, he had this look of just like fear, like he wanted, he, he didn't want to be here again. Oh man. And so started to try and convince my mom to go back. And so I'm, I'm five, maybe six, sister's my sister's just two. Born, yeah. Um, yeah, just, just born. And, and she puts her foot down and is like, look, 
I got it. We have, we have to have some stability for the kids. She had a job and she's like, I'm going to stay. You go, if you really want to go, you go back. You know, if you, you find a job and you want to stay there, we'll come out. And, um, and there was a, a six or eight months in between when we moved back to when my dad went back to Australia. But my dad eventually did, did move back and that's where he died. In Australia. Later. In Australia. Yeah. So we were here. He was there. Oh man. Yeah. And, and the impact it had on your mom at that time. Do you remember being six years old? And yeah, I remember, I remember when she told me and then she just basically, I think went into like survival mode. And my memory of her was just like, she like held it together and like worked her ass off to provide for us. Cause my dad left us in, you know, some bad financial, bad financial situation. And she basically just stepped up. So my memory of her is just like getting shit done and yeah. seeing her a lot less. So I was kind of thrust in this role of now kind of being more of a caretaker to my sister. Um, and shortly after my dad died, we moved out of La Jolla. My mom worked up in Carlsbad. So we moved North to Del Mar or near Del Mar. And so I just, Remember my mom, like, again, having it together, working her ass off, but then I'd sometimes just, like, at night hear her crying. just yeah, breaking down. Yeah, just, like, when we weren't around, you know, but I could sense it. I could, you know, I could yeah. tell what was going on. And a lot of this is, like, I'm not super conscious of it at the of time. Of course. Just, now, you mentioned when we first started that you, you, as a kid, felt shame about your dad taking his life. Can you Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I don't know if I felt shame right away, but as I got a little older and more had more capacity to understand what suicide was and what it meant. I started to realize it wasn't like an okay way to die in like terms of society sure. and like, you know, extended family gatherings, for example, you know, like my dad's name never came up and, or if his name came up, it would, it was taboo. It was taboo. Totally. Like, no, you know, I, that's probably how it is you know, just around death. I think there's a certain taboo around death, but suicide, I think there's an added You're right. layer of kind of like, well, shame or whatever. It I is. get it. I didn't feel like I could talk to, you know, didn't feel like I could talk to my friends about it. And like, you know, people would ask about where my dad was when I was young and I'd say he died in a car crash or yeah. some version of that. Ugh. I remember going to, so I always lied about my dad, how yeah. he died. I remember going to the doctor. I was a little older, probably like 13. Um, wrote about this in the book, going to the doctor and, and the, the doctor taking or asking about my health history, family history and all that. And told, told him about my mom. Then I told her about my dad and I felt like I was like, I'm just going to say it this time. And I, I remember going, you know, my dad, he killed himself or he died by suicide. And the doctor, everything changed, like her whole vibe changed. And she's like, listen, this is something you really need to watch out for. Uh, you know, this is in your family. It's in your genetics, especially as you get older. You're much more likely now to deal with depression, to to be suicidal. And I was like, the last that's the last time I'm gonna share that with a fucking professional yeah, or you know, with anyone. And there's an aspect to that that's real. If I were to believe that wholeheartedly, that would you know, mess me up, destroy you. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's what I was gonna ask you: is there is an aspect to that that is real? Does that loom over you it did for a long time yeah for a long time it did probably you know my whole adolescence and it like it i think that adds to sort of the shame you know i felt like i was like you thought that was going to be your fate as i well. thought it was going to be my fate for sure yeah oh, i'm so sorry 
Yeah, I think I think it's a common. I think that's one of the also oh, one yeah. of the the things that happen when you can't talk when when I felt like I couldn't talk about it. Just like it just grew and grew and grew, and there's the genetic component, and I didn't really I didn't have like the balls to research exactly what that meant. I was just like felt like I was destined. It felt like felt like it was destined to to if something didn't go right, I was going to end it. And I I was very fortunate to have a a conversation with one of my dad's good friends when I was 17 that sort of changed my perspective on this. And that was like the beginning of, I think, coming to face a lot of this stuff. And that was, I was doing a lot of bodyboarding, boogie boarding, if you're familiar with that. And, of course. <laughs> and uh, started to compete. And at my senior year in high school, got, got had the opportunity to go to Australia to do some competitions and stuff and to visit some family friends in Australia. Where, where did you go to high school? I was oh, yeah, ask. yeah. I went to Torrey Pines. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. I had the opportunity to go back to Australia, and I stayed in Perth. I stayed with one of my dad's really good friends, uh, a guy named John David, who grew up in South Africa with my dad. He and, his, he and his wife knew my parents really well. And he was one of my dad's best friends when they were kids. They swam together. And I didn't know it at the time, but his dad committed suicide when he was a kid. So he had, his dad died, and then one of his best friends uh, committed suicide, right, or died by suicide. And remember, like, one of my first days there, we went on this long walk, and he just opened up about his dad and, and the experience of not talking about it for many years, kind of a similar thing that I was going through. So you weren't, as a kid, you're, you didn't discuss it at all at this point? Not at all. Wow. I mean, maybe a conversation with my mom or two, yeah. but brief and superheated, like, not, not a lot of processing going on, you know? When you say heated, what does that mean? Well, just... And I don't know if it's heated or emotionally charged to the point right. where it was like overwhelming. Like right. I would kind of have to leave or, you know, I think I held a lot of anger toward my dad about putting my mom in such a heavy situation and just like listening to her, you know, like seeing her cry, or like hearing her cry a lot of yeah. times. And then that builds up to the point where you're of like, of course, man. Yeah. And I, especially you're the man of the house at right. this point too. Right. Oldest so you gotta, son. you gotta keep it together a little bit too. So, yes. so we, let's get back to the beach yeah. with your dad's, uh, you're 17 yeah. and, and your dad's former best friend. Yeah. We go, he shares with me about his experience with suicide. And for the, for the first time, I feel like this guy knows what I'm talking about. Like he's been there. And I think that's part of why I didn't talk about it too. It's because I don't didn't have people that really outside of my immediate family that can, I could un, that maybe could understand. Sure. And I felt it was like the first time I felt like I could really talk about it and had this incredible conversation back and forth where I was able to let out a lot of the the stuff I was holding on to for a long time. And he, I think, challenged me sort of in a way to not run away from it anymore and to see maybe there's something I can learn from it. Mm. And so it kind of set me off on this. After that trip, I was like, and before this, you know, we touched upon this, but I had felt destined to, to go down my dad's same path. I'd contemplated it. I'd you know, gotten close. I, I don't think I could ever gotten through with it because of my mom and sister and stuff, but got close. It was something that was on my mind all the time. So you did, you did, battle your own depression then at, yeah. at, through your childhood. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Specifically, I think in adolescence, like teenage years, yeah. high school, middle school. When it comes to your father in that particular place, how far down have you gone? Like how much work have you done in that area to really find out what drove your dad to that point? I think I've done is I've done a lot of work on it. Like I don't think it's exhausted it, but it's I've done as much as I feel necessary. 
I, I had, you know, after graduating from high school, I had the opportunity to go pro as a bodyboarder, which I'm not talking major bucks, but I had the hey, opportunity to travel, cool, travel and yeah. uh, boogie board. The, so you were the kind of following his footsteps it, in a way. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I made it a point to, my dad had friends and family all over the place, and I made it a point to find out or seek out these people wherever I traveled, if it correlated, and meet with them and learn as much as I could about them. What was their perspective of him? Strengths, weaknesses, why do you think he died? I, I talked to everyone I could. I talked to my mom. I talked to you know, extended family. I talked to the, my dad's cousin, who's the guy who found him when he died got the play-by-play of what that was like, which I had kind of avoided for a long time. Sure. But through my early 20s, I kind of dealt, I went went into it. And did you and, discuss in the book how he did die? Yeah, you yeah, do. he, yeah, he, um, and I'm comfortable sharing, it was the, um, oh, I always forget the term, the uh, carbon monoxide. Carbon okay. Yeah, carbon, yeah. yeah, basically hose to an exhaust pipe into a trash bag. Damn. Yeah. And through your studying, did you get your why, or did you ever get the answers that you were looking for? I think so. Yeah, I yeah. think I got as we're close. always learning. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one thing; it's an ongoing process. I think I got as close to getting. At, I think there's something that died with him. The, the real truth, you know, could only come out of a conversation with him, which right. is not possible, right? But I did come away with some really, I think, clear. I think pointers in the right direction and they were things some of them we've already touched on it was like this was someone who was you know highly competitive operating at a high level but didn't know what to do when he didn't get what he wanted yeah um treated life like a race basically like goal to goal to goal to goal and had very little very little time to or took little time to kind of appreciate the process so he kind of had a think he had a little bit of a entitlement thing going on yeah for sure yeah. for sure i can relate yeah yeah i also see this a lot and have seen this a lot too with you know just anyone who has a crazy amount of success in their 20s and 30s man pro athletes right. action sports stars right. you know this is they get into their 40s and they're like what the hell do i do now and the money doesn't come in like it used to right. and, and the fame and the glory doesn't uh doesn't follow either yeah and then you're like what was driving me was it the money was it the ego well both those those two things alone are pretty shitty. Yeah. So what is my purpose and my existence really right. about? Right. And those are the, those are all the questions that I think came up in this, in this process. And it was very clear that from people I talked to that my dad's sort of, uh, I guess like his sense of self-worth was wrapped up in the status, the fame, like the money yeah. for the most part. Right. And then when that so, stuff leaves, like, what do you have? What do you have? Right. And so it was like, it was almost in a way like blueprint of what, and my dad had some really good qualities too, but blueprint of what kind of not to do in some ways. And it was like, what about, this is something I think about a lot and it's part of my practice, like can you operate on a high level but do it from a different place, like a place of more internal motivation, right? Like self-development or helping others or so that kind true. of stuff, which is, this is like much more difficult. Uh, easy, much easier said than done. But. Oh, I'm living that. You know. like, oh, yeah. boy. Yeah, yeah. You're right, though. I'd like to hear more about you getting on 
on the right path. Sure. Tell me about that. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, your your father's friend, you're 17 years old. Yeah, so that was certainly the beginning of it. The the I think pivot point, turning point. And then my my therapy was feeling all the stuff that I hadn't that I'd been trying to avoid for many years. So I didn't really talk about this explicitly, but I think my survival mechanism when I was young was to not feel that part of my life, right. to numb it out or to cut it out. Yep. And that doesn't really work that well after a while, you know. It eventually to, comes back up. Yeah. And like with 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 a fury. With a fury, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Ain't that the truth. Yeah. And so my process was really scary and really painful and it was having the conversations with people about my dad and asking about all the, you know, the things that I felt that I never talked about it, the reasons I felt destined to go down the same path and having the conversations and facing it, having conversations with my mom about it and sitting with her and watching her cry and me crying too. And, and sitting, sitting with the different emotions that were coming up, which was totally foreign to me through my adolescence. Yeah. And it was super scary and it's still an on, you know, it's an ongoing process, right? There hasn't, there's not like one thing that, yeah, but it's, I think it's been a process of stepping into the emotion of it and feeling it and, and seeing what happens when I didn't run away. But in the day and age that we live in right now, it's such a pertinent dialogue, especially when you represent the adult version of the kids who are affected by such a thing. You know, you always yeah. think about the kids. Yeah. And those kids that are your age, six years old at the time, my right. kids' ages, and now here you are in your 30s, and it hasn't been an easy ride for you, man. No. Yeah, not at all. I mean, and I think that was one of the biggest motivators. I mean, it was extremely difficult writing this book. I can't imagine, and that's what I wanted to yeah. ask you. Did you ever have aspirations of being an author? Were you ever trained? You know, I was an English major in college, and I would fear writing a book. I've, I would never even think about it. Yeah, I, I didn't really. No, I I didn't really. Um, I, I did I did enough to get by, you know, like just like just enough to get by in school, especially early on. I kind of came back with more purpose later, but. No, I was focused on the physical stuff, the bodyboarding stuff. It's a piece I talk about in the book a bit, but I ended up getting, in my early 20s, getting laid up with a hip injury, really bad injury, that took me out of my bodyboarding, took me out of, and I was kind of put into place where I had to face all, all the stuff we're talking about. Oh, man. Yeah. And when you're dealing with an injury and you can't move and you're yeah. just stuck there with your head and you, yeah. you don't have the water to wash the shit yeah. off. Woof. And that was a wake-up call. I was like, I'm, I'm awesome if I have the ocean, if I have bodyboarding. And in, in, in a really sort of ninja-like way, I have become very dependent on my sort of success in bodyboarding or my physical you know, this now ability. defines you. This now defines this me. This was I, your yeah, deal. for sure. And so that's a whole nother sort of that's a whole nother layer, whole other piece. But during that time, I realized I went through. It was very difficult for me. Like for the first, you know, for the first time since I was a, a teenager, was like, is it worth living right now? You know, like can't do the stuff I like. You know, and this is I'm just who am I if I can't? I was teaching yoga too. I was a lifeguard in Del Mar. I was. Everything I did was dependent on my physical ability. Yeah. And then, so it's the same conversation we had before. It's like, what am I, why am I really doing this stuff? Yeah. And it kind of made me look deeper. And then it, and then I discovered writing sort of just, I just couldn't sleep one night. Uh, had a complication with my, I had ended up having two surgeries and was laid up longer than expected. And I just, 
couldn't sleep, I was losing it. And then I just all of a sudden had a little poem that came to me and I just started to write it. And then that developed into other things and that eventually developed into the book. Yeah. And I get it again. Cause, uh, I, I just dealt with a, a herniated disc issue. I yeah, was yeah. pushing on my sciatic nerve and it yeah. dropped me to my knees just crying. Dude. It's just the worst pain. This is back this past January yeah. and, uh, being laid up, with chronic pain and you can't move. In fact, just tweet it out. Here, I'll read it to you. After a three-month hiatus and loads of physical therapy, beyond thankful to be back surfing with the homies because that three-month process of being stuck in my head and in chronic pain and working through it really makes you look inwards in ways you never expected to or wanted to it forces you to deal basically 100 yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah because it, you don't have your outlet it's just right. even the drugs didn't work you know they're right. giving me pain pills and i'm like i don't want to take these they're yeah, making yeah. me feel fucking weird yeah, yeah all i want to do is surf yeah and i can surf and then the mind starts really working against itself right and then it's like really what's the root of what's going on here right right and i think that's like how any real like lasting change or processing takes place it's like you know it's, i think having those outlets is really important surfing you know the physical stuff but it's there's got to be not, more you know there's more underneath what's going on underneath yeah. it, you know what i mean so uh ashes in the ocean why did you name the book that my dad was cremated after he died okay he's a literal little literal yeah. ashes in the ocean and um this is a memory that sticks out you know very clear for me or the the meaning of it was you know I, a lot of my memories of my dad were at, in La Jolla at the Cove. That's where I like, learned to swim, swam with him. And uh, after he died, we spread his ashes in the Cove. And I felt after that, like, as bad as things got on land, if I could just get to the beach, then I'd be with my dad. It'd be okay. And I started to, I really saw the ocean as an Your extension connection. of my dad. It was like, he was there in the in the seaweed and the in the seagulls and the water and the sand and I would just go and it became like this sort of holy experience for me. I'm looking at a picture of your dad right now in the book, which I obviously recommend people get. Um, dang, dude, your dad, he looks like friggin' Thor. I yeah, mean, he's a beast. He's a beast, yeah, yeah. bro. You're not kidding, man. Like, holy shit. Like, he's a pillar, as you said, pillar of strength, man. Right. So are you a spiritual person, religious person? I, I am kind of curious. You know, we, we hit everything on this podcast. There's no questions yeah. I'm afraid of asking. So, I like that. yeah. Yeah, I would say I'm definitely a spiritual person, not necessarily a religious person. Sure. I think my, my beliefs are come out of these experiences yeah. largely. You know, it, to me, it's connection with nature is really, really key. And it's, it's that's sort of my... My church, right? You hear that, you know. But but getting in the water, getting to the park doesn't necessarily have to be the ocean. But getting outside—that's I feel connected, connected with my dad, connected to everything. How has all this stuff impacted your mom, uh, your mom and your sister today? I am curious, and you don't have to get fully into it. Just overview. Yeah, overview is, you know, the honest answer is that we are. Uh, still working through it and still I'm kind of in a different place than my sister, for example, like she was, as you, we talked about earlier, she was very young when this, when this happened. And so she's still, I don't want to say it's like an earlier, that's not the right term, but still kind of coming to terms with facing, having these kind of conversations. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. 
we are, but we are having more of these conversations as a family. I had, my mom went through a tough time in recent years with depression and anxiety herself. And now is coming out the other side. And that again is we are learning how to work through this still. It's still basically untangling the, uh, so many years later. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, keep in mind, it never ends it. Well, I think just to clarify a lot of those years we were doing, we were not dealing with it. Good point. And so when that stuff came, started coming up, um, you know, that all those years of sort of numbing or avoiding or running away doesn't really help to, you know, add to the unwinding. Yeah. So what you're saying, it's, it's not like it's been 25 years of consistency. There was such a long period and season of not addressing and living your life and being in the hustle that now this is a lot of the residual stuff like post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, PTSD type stuff where on the other side, years later, all the shit comes out. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. man. Yeah. I get that too. So we're still we're still working through it, and it, but it is, it's a tough process, but a really wonderful process in terms of like getting to know each other better and on a more real level. Yep. And then getting to know ourselves. It's so interesting because I look at death a lot differently after doing a lot of studying. Of it. Have you ever heard of Ram Dass? Who yeah. Did a, Be here now. That was his most acclaimed book. But later in life, he had a stroke. And uh, there's a great documentary called Fierce Grace that he's the subject of. And he's talking to a woman that just lost her partner. I don't remember the circumstances, but he had just such a beautiful take on death, which was like, it's when you deal with death, as you've already established here, it's just, and you deal with it as a taboo taboo subject, there's never going to be any growth, but the real growth, and you can actually, not only growth, but you can actually find bona fide beauty in death yeah. through these experiences that you're talking about with your mom and your sister, when you start communicating and addressing it, it actually can be a beautiful, fruitful experience. Absolutely. And it's inevitable, right? I think in, in our culture, it's easy to, we, you know, it's not in our face a lot, you know, yeah. in, as it is in other places. And so I think there is a benefit to having to contemplating death for sure. And, and it having, is a cultural thing. You're yeah. right too. Where we're so, our culture, we're afraid of it, right? Or we yeah. don't want to address it or talk about it or it's everything's, yeah. oh no. And people die and they're dressed up and, you know, in fancy clothes and they're putting, you know, makeup on, you know, and, and, you're and right. they look beautiful, right? Because they like, don't want to accept it. Yeah. They, and, you know, in other cultures, that it's a, it can be a practice of, you know, watching a body decompose, as intense as that sounds, but it's like, that's real. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the process. Part of the process. Hence ashes in the ocean. Right. So my last question for you is if there's somebody listening right now that is contemplating suicide that has young kids at home, what would you tell that person? That's a great question. And I, can I answer that in the form of a story? Please. I wonder. Yeah. And Even if better. I go too long. Dude, I'll you give you, I'll me, literally, you, you can go for an hour. <laughs> And just just for the for the record, I, I'll tell it, but I want to keep uh, I want to keep some sort of uh, what's the word? Um, uh, Characters, <laughs> no, no, likeness, no, yeah, like a, like a, um, confidentiality around, <laughs> sure. around the person. So anyway, so um, before starting to write the book, this is maybe six or seven years ago. I was in a really I found myself in a really interesting position where. Without giving you too much of the backstory, I I had the opportunity to talk to someone 
that had was in a very similar situation to my dad. They were around the same age, you know, mid forties, had two kids, uh, struggling with some finances, a lot of similar dynamics. I was friends with this person's uh, daughter and was with her at the time when she found out that her dad had attempted uh, to commit suicide. And I went with her to her house, to their, to her dad's house. Um, basically what happened was the dad tried to die in the same way that my dad Come on. killed himself. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the, you know, garage turning you know, on the car. And the, then his son came home and found him before he was unconscious and he aborted, basically bailed the scene and like locked himself in his room. So I show up maybe 10 minutes after this happens and I'm like, I have chill. Like I, I have just chills walking into this house because I'm like, this is so nuts, the similarities, right? And so the daughter goes in to talk to him. I'm waiting in the living room. He's not responding to her, not really talking to her. She comes back out and I said, look, I don't really know this guy, but I'm like, I'm open to talking to him if he's open to it. She's like, okay, and goes in back into the bedroom and I'm like, there's no way he's gonna wanna talk to me. She comes out and she's like, he wants to talk to you. And I was like, all right. Holy cow. And I remember walking in, going through this hallway, and it was a um, beautiful day, kind of like this. You could hear birds outside. And I just had this, this sense that this was the opportunity to talk to my dad as if he didn't die. Wow. And I go into the room and it's just like, curtains drawn, super dark, super heavy. He's in there just staring at the ceiling, curled up in covers, I sit down next to him. And I just started to share with him a little bit about my experience and about my dad. And he's going from not being engaged to being engaged and then starts sharing with me about his like, all his thoughts of feeling stuck, feeling like he you know, isn't good enough, trapped, you know, failure, the failure, like this is not a good evading. provider. Yeah. All that stuff. Failed my family. Can't hold on to a job. Comparing to the neighbors. Comparing to the neighbors. All this, all the kind Guy of the masculine. The Tesla. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we just, we talked for probably an hour and a half, just shared back and forth. And, you know, when you ask that question, it's like, it's easy for me to want to respond well to mention how hard it was on my mom and my sister and me. But I don't want to give someone, I guess, I guess that's like doing it through, like shaming them into feeling, or to, to not dying because of these people. But that, I mean, that's real, right? right. But, we, you know, so I didn't come in and try and like save him necessarily. You know, I wasn't trying to like, here's what you got to do. We just had this conversation and it was a connection. And I think over the course of the hour and a half, he started coming around and being like, you like, what am I doing? We ended up taking him to the hospital. I didn't mention this, but my dad was briefly in uh, Mesa Vista. This is the psychiatric or behavioral health hospital in San Diego. This guy went to the same place. I went through the whole process with him. I drove down to the hospital with him, went through the intake process, and visited him occasionally after and saw him come out the other side. And... It was, it was really just an amazing, I think, opportunity. And so I think my answer 
get back to your question would be just to kind of remind people that they're not alone and especially men feeling like they have to have their shit together all the time and never be vulnerable. So true, man. It's not, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. My, I never saw my dad cry. I saw him cry. Actually, I saw him cry one time before he went to Australia and it was, it stood out because I never saw him weak at all. Even when I went to visit him in the hospital in the, when he was in the, uh, the hospital for depression, he just, you know, was, he never looked sad. He was just like, when I visited him, he would be like cheery and have it all together. And and that weighs on you and it's not realistic. No, because it it takes so much energy keeping that front up and sharing experiences and having community with others that can relate to similar experiences or those trials and tribulations that we fight with and that our egos go to war. You know, it's just knowing that you're not alone you can conquer so fucking much once oh, yeah. you have that information and yeah. know that. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's what I come back to a lot is that conversation I had with my dad's friend when I was 17 is, you know, I never had an example of someone who was successful uh, having lost someone to suicide in their family, right? And I didn't think that was a thing. And, and so it's, I mean, there's a lot of people that die by suicide. And, it's, and there's a lot of, I think, so the more we can share, that we can talk and connect, the better. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you're incredibly successful and I don't attribute that to financial success. I attribute your success to the fact that you were able to share your experiences so candidly here and write a book about your experiences. Cause I can't imagine how much this is going to help other human beings. So thanks, man. Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. Wow. Uh, Thank you, Sebastian, for sharing your story. Very kind and generous of you. And and thank you for the book. I I can't wait to read actually the entire book and learn more and about stuff we weren't able to cover in this interview. Uh, Again, the name of the book is Ashes in the Ocean, a reflection about living through and learning from his father's suicide. And uh, he's got a website, Sebastian Slavin. It's S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N-S-L-O vin.com we'll have links up in the blog at uyewonline.com and as always thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting this podcast it it really means the world to me especially when i live in a world that uh is all based on digital media I, i no longer work in traditional media and broadcasting and that's that's hard sometimes to put behind me because again that represents you know 25 years of my past and uh, change and, and new direction can be intimidating and scary. And this can be at times. And because of you on the other end, you subscribing to the podcast, downloading, sharing it, it, it helps keep the machine moving uh, along with the, uh, the Patreon too. As I mentioned at the end of every show, thank you to all our patrons. It's patreon.com forward slash U-Y-E-W from Butch to Jason to Dave to uh, Jennifer, to Mariposa Ice Cream, the best homemade ice cream on the planet with locations in Normal Heights on Adams Avenue, Oceanside, Temecula, coming to Murrieta, I hear. (laughs) But yes, the best homemade ice cream on the planet, Mariposa Ice Cream, and one of our devoted patrons on our Patreon account. So thank you 
We really appreciate you. Love each and every one of you. Have a fantastic week. In our next episode, uh, we're going to be talking to a very successful entrepreneur here in San Diego. In fact, I believe he has raised the most capital out of any entrepreneur in all of San Diego County. The guy's a big deal. Maybe you can learn a few things from him. Maybe I can learn a few things from him. I can learn a few things. I'm always learning. How about you? You. Until next time, be well and much aloha.